0: Okay, there. Hold on. Yeah, there we go. It was fine. It was heading uh, This is me not knowing anything about it. <laughs> I do how many of these, and I have no clue what's going on. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot of trouble since they put the internet on computers, eh?
0: Oh, man, it's just ridiculous. I remember when it was steam powered, it was way easier. So, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I'm your host, Sammy. Make no bones about it. I got a really funny bone, you nan. (sighs) Here's the thing. We have oversold the values and virtues of political correctness, which most often has the ugly habit of turning debate club into really fight club. That's just one way to sum up my conversation with stand-up comic Simon King. I relish these My Summer layer conversations. Actually, not even exclusively on my podcast. Anybody these conversations happen from NPR's Fresh Air to uh, CBC's Q to Larry King. Actually, I don't, I don't think Larry King's with us anymore. Anyways, I'm talking about these dynamic conversations where the speakers fluctuate between the silly and the serious. as prompted by the material in Simon King's excellent stand-up special, As Good As or Better Than. He and I, we stagger like happy drunks. I love you, man. Between the debilitating effects of racism to, well, the humorous effects of racism. Sometimes racism is funny. It's weird to say, but it makes sense because anything naturally rooted in ignorance is going to be funny. (laughs) Ignorance is humorous. Comedian Simon King tweeted, Stupid people's superpower is that they're too stupid to know. They aren't smart which is pretty impressive i'm just smart enough to know i'm not smart and it's a fresh hell daily i'm jealous of their dumb privilege so good the comedy special as good as or better than totally lives up to its name see for yourself on youtube it's there for free youtube as good as or better than to give you a flavor of what you can expect here's my conversation with simon king about his comedy special um do you have any questions or should we just get right into it
0: uh no unless there's anything you think i need to know other than that we could just uh just get going
1: all right so then you are ready to talk about the hole in your soul the size of your childhood
0: absolutely that's like my go-to move <laughs> <laughs> that's all i talk about that
1: that's your first date like uh right at the beginning there you just open it up. i like to let la-
0: I like to let people know, it, put it all on the table and be like, by the way, so you know, I'm a broken human. Anyway, okay. we, should an, we should get an appetizer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so there's no trailer with you is what you're saying. Like, you no. you know exactly what you're no. getting up front.
0: Yeah, there's no trailer and there will be no sequel if I find enough booze. So we're good. So. <laughs> <Okay>.
1: <laughs> all right. Duly noted. All right. See, we're learning a lot. One other thing that I, I want to learn or know about you Mm-hmm. Simon King is—you uh, do a pretty good Sean Connery voice impression.
0: Do you? Yeah, do... I do a, a bunch of those. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Which other <laughs> ones can you do?
0: a uh, lots. Um, like. Uh... You know, this one is very popular with people. They like this one a lot. (laughs) And it's great because they enjoy it. You know, so you can do that. You can do a Paul Giamatti voice. Not a lot of people do Paul Giamatti. Yeah. But there you go. (laughs) Uh, You know, (laughs) you do do, um, like, uh, oh, you know, Robin Williams. Hello. How are you? Okay. That's weird. Not a lot of people do that voice, but I like it. (laughs) (laughs) So just basically, this is my bag of tricks. This is what makes me appealing to other humans. Okay.
1: (laughs) You should put that on your business card. Um, Yeah so what is the trick then to like mastering these kind of voices is it just ear or are you like uh is there a special technique you use or anything like that
0: i don't know it's weird because it's like i i mean everyone that i know that does impressions kind of does i think most people can do an impression or two they maybe don't realize it Mm -hmm. um i think a few people can do a lot of impressions relatively well like i'm one of those people i can do a lot of impressions most of them are pretty close so they're good enough for what i need them for it's like it's like a it's a utilitarian thing, right? So, um, and if you want to do something completely, ac- the funny thing is when you do something completely accurately, people often don't think that's what the person actually sounds like because they get the stereotype or the or the 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 trope in their head. Mm-hmm. Like if you do a walk-in, for instance, everyone expects him to be up but he's not. In reality, he's an old man, old guy, not even young anymore. You know, even talk that loud, but way, you know. So it's like when you do that. Yeah if you want to take those voices and and so for me i try to avoid the the thing that a lot of people jump on that the 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 kind of the stereotypical impression thing um so uh, with a sean connery it would be um you know if you use it too many times it gets you have to realize this is an old man and he speaks like this a little bit but he's actually higher than people realize and so there's little things like that that go back and forth and it also depends on what words you can find your way into like when I first did Arnold Schwarzenegger, I needed, I wrote the joke first, which I always do. So I wrote the joke first, and I was like, I need an Arnold Schwarzenegger voice to get this right. This was back in, like, 2001. And I was like, I had to find a way in. And the word that I found was crazy. That's the word. <laughs> and if I'm crazy, that's the one he does. Yes. It's, all the things you need idea. Right <laughs> so And then... to develop the ability to have a conversation in that voice which (laughs) makes it better because if you can't talk like that then what are you going (laughs) to do right but people also don't realize that his voice is actually a little more lifted than they think so Mm -hmm. a lot of people wonder that's not what it sounds like he's He's just a guy's in his 70s he's having a good time (laughs) so that's yeah so that's kind of how it is you find the piece that that's why people who don't have a lot of um nothing to grab onto in their voice are really difficult to impersonate and imitate because if they don't have something to grab onto that you can kind of go from there a jumping off point, it makes it very difficult. So you get voices like, you know, uh, Ben Affleck is a difficult one to do. um Brad Pitt's a difficult one to do. Like, these are ones I can't do because, like, I, I, I needed to do a Leonardo DiCaprio for something, and I couldn't quite figure out how to get him, Leonardo DiCaprio, without sounding like Christian Slater. Mm-hmm. Because they, they sort of all, all sound like this. And, and Leonardo DiCaprio is sort of like, can I ask you something very quickly? But then uh, Christian Slater is sort of like, more like this, right? So, like, he leans in and slow... So there's subtleties in that, like, you know, because they're humans and they got different voices. Right.
1: Yeah. You're almost talking like a Rosetta Stone. You need some sort of like Rosetta Stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, I mean, like Jack Nicholson is very iconic. Trump is like lately we've heard yeah. a lot of him. Like, yeah, you can kind of crack those ones. Right. Because they're like there's that Rosetta Stone that you're talking about where like you you have a way in. There's an on ramp. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like I never used to do a Trump. I never did one. And then I, 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 I came up with an idea for him doing an audio book that he just hasn't read <laughs> So, totally doing the road by cormac mccarthy totally big road really great road <laughs> so it's like that thing of like but his voice is higher than you think and mm-hmm. so any also did, very much so totally slow really slow and he does that thing where he like leans into his into his voice so like i said these are not perfect they don't need to be perfect they just need to be useful for the for the act mm-hmm. and so you can do um Like I had to do one the other day and I was doing a Bernie Sanders uh, if he was Doc from Back to the Future. So (laughs) you have to go to 88 miles an hour and you will go back in time to a time when American workers were paid a decent living wage. So that's kind of like, (laughs) it's just stupid. Yeah. So that's what I use a lot of them for. They're more just like silly than anything else.
1: Yeah. And the voices is obviously, like you said, it's part of your comedy, but uh, you recently on IG you mentioned your stand-up comedy birthday, which is February 8, 2000.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so
1: happy birthday, because that just recently passed. Like, Thanks. Do you do anything special for your comedy birthdays?
0: Well, this time we released the special, because uh, so we put out um, As Good As Are Better Than, which is an album and a special. But the special was, it was really important to me, because um, so when I started comedy, uh, you know, although there's many years ago, I was 22 years old, and I uh, I did comedy... It was much more goofy. It was much more silly. Much more impression based and character based. I had points and messages, but I didn't have it. The I didn't have the, the tools to do it properly. And I was also young. I didn't really have the life experience. And so, around um, right about ten years in, I decided I'm like I'm, I, I need to be more than one dimension here. So what I did was I put all those impressions and voices and characters and everything away. Pretty much put them all away. Um, around about sort of beginning of 2011 and 2010, and I just started doing stuff completely without that superpower. I didn't use the voices, didn't use characters, didn't use anything. I just decided to write comedy and be a comic. And I spent many years learning that. It's almost like learning a new language, something you kind of have to stop thinking in the language you were thinking and in, think in the new language. It's kind of that way. And so in order for me to learn how to do comedy that way, I had to kind of put all that other stuff away. And then I went to England for a while, and I felt like I kind of reached the high water mark with that sort of material. I released a special called Furious, which was, very uh very much just that stuff very bootleg style we did it just as what it is which is a, a point I was at in my career where I wanted to show that I had teeth and then what I did was I slowly started to merge the two styles together and so that was where I always wanted to get to so this special it's called as good as or better than for a couple of reasons one because I wanted to prove to myself that I'm as good as or better than I was back in the early days when I got all that heat and everything went really well career-wise for me and then I have to kind of restart. I'm also um, as good as or better than I thought I would be at this point in terms of I stayed, I stuck around long enough. I I taught myself this new style. I learned I've become a better comic than I thought I could be and still want to be better yet. And so when we released this special, it was like a very significant birthday because 22 years means I've been a comic longer than not, which Mm -hmm. is the big birthday for comedians. Um, And then at that point, I released the special that day to prove that I'm just as good as I was, and there's more to come. so it was like important to me to be like, this isn't you know the end of a locker. Long- <laughs> this is like kind of the halfway point, and mm-hmm. I've got more to go. so that's kind of why it came out that day, mostly on comedy birthdays i I don't really i mean I have a you know glass of whiskey sort of thing, and maybe maybe I'll hang out with some friends or do some shows usually, but mostly they just kind of go by because it's not that significant, but twenty years was significant twenty two years every sort of five years, and then of course the twenty second one was in, because of you know. Now there's nothing good for another three years. (laughs) (laughs) Hence the whiskey. Yeah. Hence the whiskey. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I get it. And like you said, you retired some of the voices and some of the earlier acts or some of the bits that you had, and you kind of went in this Mm -hmm. new direction. What, was that road like hard after, like, because you know, like oh. with the voices, you can kind of like, there's a backup in a sense, right? Not that I'm yeah. like, it's like a cheat code, yeah.
0: right? No, you're right. It is. It is. It's, it's something that, because I never used them that heavily, but it was always something that would add that little extra spice to a bit. So you'd have a bit, because I'm a bit, like I said, I'm a proponent of writing the joke first. So I write the joke, then I, if I want to, I add the bits in. So it was never just, I can do an impression, this is what it is. It was always like, um, this is something that would be funny and it would be even funnier if I could get the voice. So I would often work on the voice just to have it, but, and so it was never the only thing I had, I always had the writing underneath it, but it really was difficult. Um, there was one time I was, it was the hardest it ever kind of got from me because every time you release an hour, anyway, you're starting again, like that's your best to that point, And then you're starting again, and you always have that doubt. Was that it? Can I write another one? Am I capable of it? Um, so that fear existed. And then when you're changing styles like that, I was like relearning how to do stand-up. It was like learning to walk again. I didn't really know how to do it. And I was I a big proponent of taking extremely strong opening comics on the road with me. So anyone that is frightening, like frighteningly good, I want to go on after them. Because it's like going to the gym. If you, if you just lift the weights you can lift, you're not going to build. So I like to go after people that are strong. And I, I had a friend of mine. We are doing a show in Victoria. This is about 2011, I think. So I had just kind of started. I think I had an hour, basically, of the new stuff, but not really there. And uh, his name's Chris Gordon, and he's all, already an insanely good comic. But he had one of those sets just shook the room. Like, mm. he's a very different style of comedy for me. Like, energetic, but very different type of material. And the audience really loved what he was doing. And I knew... I, I was really doubtful. And I was in the back, and I watched him just annihilate this room. And for the first time... Pretty much in my comedy career, I got genuinely worried. I was like, I don't know what to do here because I know that if I go up there and I do the act I was doing before, I'll be fine. I know I will. Or I can stick to my guns and try the new stuff and this is going to be a trial by fire. And it was one of those moments where I went on stage and uh, and I had to shift the gears very rapidly because the host just brought me pretty much straight up. The audience was still buzzing from Chris's performance. It was so good. And it took me probably three minutes before I got a laugh, three to four minutes, which is incredibly long when you're on stage. It Mm -hmm. feels like a nightmare. And I was doing a bit at the time, uh, the opener from Furious, which was trying to get everyone to go to war with the sun. Like how much the sun's a piece of shit Mm -hmm. and we need to destroy the sun, Mm -hmm. which is a difficult sell anyway. But then they've just had this great time with this hilarious comic who's, you know, lovable and fun and ridiculous and silly. And then I come up and like, destroy the sun. (laughs) I was like, but when it actually worked, it took about, like I said, three to three to four minutes, but when it actually did work and then the set went really well after that, I knew I was onto something. Cause I didn't back down and I didn't go for, you know, the shotgun into the seat that I knew I had, I didn't do it. And that was one of those moments I was very proud of myself. Cause I'm like, this means you're committed to this because it's really hard to take that ego bastion. Cause I could have easily bombed that set. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but the thing is once, I, once I was in it, I was in it. I wasn't going to shift styles. I couldn't. So it was like, I'm in this now. This is what I'm doing. And, uh, and I was very happy. And that's when I kind of knew I'm like, okay, you keep doing this, you might get good one day. And then I did. And then now it's kind of integrated um, in the new special new album. You see this I'll use voices when it's comfortable or when I need it, when I want to accent it. I use, you know, ranting. I use whatever it is. I use all the tools at my disposal. Finally, mm-hmm. I think I finally started to get a good um, palette to work with.
1: The That voice you're talking about and that kind of um, perspective, I guess, uh, that uh-huh. you're talking about you recently wrote an article about five overlooked comedians or five Mm -hmm. undervalued like comics. Yeah. And one of them that was on the list was, is a really good one. Dick Gregory.
0: Yeah. Dick Gregory is amazing. Yeah. He,
1: he, we don't talk enough about him. Like everyone kind of talks about Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy. And like, yeah. And George Carlin obviously is another classic. Like I I get Mm -hmm. the old school ones, but like Dick Gregory, his work is phenomenal. Oh yeah. That to me kind of mirrors some of what you're doing uh, with this special. Uh, as good as or better than like it's that kind of like deconstruction of like these are the things we do in a society and they're so dumb <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: but that's the thing is like that's the fun part of it because I, I i did an interview a little while ago for this press run and a guy said to me he goes why do you talk about the hard things why don't you talk about you know what you know relationships or whatever i go because to me That stuff is it. The world is a circus. It's bananas. I mean, the stuff that happens, the stuff that goes on, not just the funny stuff, the inhumane stuff, everything, all of it to me is this ridiculous situation we're in. And I think being having the privilege of doing the job I do means that I get to stand outside of that once in a while and just look. Mm -hmm. and there's this saying amongst comedians is if you're a comedian long enough even if you quit you're still a comedian because you can't stop seeing things that way you can't stop seeing what that might be and so me particularly I really enjoy dark humor and very that kind of humor because that's how I process the difficult things in the world and I think that humor has always been a really great way to throw rocks at the crown it's really always been a great way to kind of make the point make the observation make it something that Because, you know, when you're talking about something big and heavy on stage, most people aren't thinking about that stuff. They're out for a night. They're thinking about they got to get snow tires. they got to pick the kids up at school Mm -hmm. in the morning. Is the sitter okay? All this other stuff. Because they have lives. And I don't have the same sort of life as them. So I have to realize that the time that I'm able to spend sitting thinking about this ridiculous stuff is time they don't have. And so if I want to get my point across about that, I have to make it so accessible and still funny. But that's. The joy of it, that's the mountain to climb because how can you make something like, you know, uh, something serious like the, you know, I don't know, racism, for instance. I do 15 minutes of that. stuff. How can I, as a white dude particularly, offer anything new, anything interesting, anything relevant to say in a way, because I exist in the world. I see these things. I want to talk about them because I hate the injustice. I don't know how. So my brain is like, okay, humor is the one weapon you have that that you're pretty good at. So see how you can take that and make the thing that just show the ridiculousness of it. I used to have a bit about, um, that I used to tour all over, like, you know, Northern Alberta, wherever, all all, all the places that you would consider would be a little bit more less friendly to a liberal point of view. And I had this bit in the last act about, um, gay people. And I go, I don't understand if you're a straight guy, you should love gay guys because it's less competition for women. (laughs) And I had that line about that and a little bit, and the amount of, dudes that would come up to me afterwards who, yeah, I don't know what they believe, but I mean, based on the environment, based on the behavior, I can assume maybe weren't so friendly that come up to me and say, I never thought about that. I go, yeah, man, you want to be the only straight dude. You really do. Because then everyone's bringing you a casserole. Are you yeah. stupid? Like, <laughs> I like those odds. So, yeah, exactly, right? Like I always said, I was like, I'm not much to look at, but my stock price goes up if I'm the only straight guy in town. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so that to me is you know, this, it's a terrible thing, homophobia, racism, all these things are terrible things. Um, but the ridiculousness of that idea, to me, the ridiculousness of thinking you are better than someone else just based on the fact that you ex- is ridiculous to me. Mm-hmm. And so I can't even see that as, and I think that to me depowers it because I think if I really sat down and thought about it, you know, you'd weep, you can't, it's just too much. And mm-hmm. so that's always been the way of trade approach. And Dick Gregory was so incredibly good at that, and I think people don't appreciate that he was he, he was a contemporary of Lenny Bruce, but he was doing it as a black man in America in the early '60s. I mean, this guy I think was on TV first time in like '59. Mm-hmm. You got to think about how how long ago that this is like before the civil rights movement, all this other stuff. This dude's up there saying stuff like, "I'd pay income tax if I believe if I was paying it to a, 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 a friendly country," like right there. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like what what are you doing? So mm-hmm. I think people need to revisit and i know because he became a political activist in like 1970s stuff i think that takes away from a little bit of it because as carlin and Pryor were ramping up he was kind of pulling back because i think he had he'd done his time he put his time in as a comedy Mm -hmm. revolutionary but i would encourage anyone listening to this to to go and check out dick gregory because in living black and white is a fantastic album a fantastic album
1: yeah there was a actual recent documentary on showtime uh oh, was it yeah uh dick gregory and it was great it was it came out uh, 2021 just about a year ago again he needs a couple more documentaries and a couple of things like that just to kind mm. of like connect with the ma- uh, main audience right just to like yeah don't forget about this dude because as you said he's on tv in the f- late 50s early 60s and so there isn't mm. a lot of quote-unquote material right yeah as we get more yeah. to like richard Pryor and those guys uh, into the '70s and '80s, obviously, there's a lot more like material that you can kind of see and hear and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, Red Fox is another yeah. one that kind of falls out through the cracks because there isn't enough material. to like... Yeah,
0: yeah. I really hope that somebody—and I don't know whether one of the labels or someone or who owns the masters—I don't know what's going on—but I really hope somebody re-releases them in a format that younger people particularly can digest. I mean, because you know, you can go get the things on Vine. they're hard to find. Um, mm-hmm. But you can go get the Gregory stuff and vinyl. You could find some of it online and everything. But to have a comprehensive catalogue of these early comedians, Mort Sahl another one. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't really understand Lenny Bruce, uh, what was going on. There's some albums in there that are definitely worth checking out. I mean, I try to be pragmatic about these things and look at it and go, look, that a lot of it was of the time and it maybe isn't as funny now, but because this is 70 years hence or 60 years hence. Um, but I mean, even if you look at guys like, when when Dick Gregory was doing this political social comedy at uh, comedy commentary, um, George Carlin was still hippy dippy weatherman. Mm-hmm. Richard Pryor was still kind of like this light version of what Bill Cosby was doing at the time. I mean, this is this is something that was before their time, and they saw guys like Gregory and guys like Bruce and everything, and they went, "Okay, this is this is what you can do," mm-hmm. and that spurred the 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 ability for comics like myself to do what we do because. You know, when I hear comedians nowadays complain about like, oh, I can't say what I want on stage. I'm like, dude, there's mugshots of comedians who literally couldn't say what they want on a stage. So stop whining and figure it out. Mm -hmm. Because all you got to do is figure out how you can talk about anything. You just got to figure out how to do it. It's just hard. This is really hard. And so you got to get better.
1: How do you balance that? Like you said, it's kind of hard because some of the material you have, as you said, you spend the first 15 minutes of this new special talking about racism. Mm -hmm. Racism is funny. Like I'm I'm a visible minority. And I know like because it's rooted in ignorance right yeah and exactly it's, yeah it's just stupid yeah and like i'm egyptian so which makes it hard because like i'm a little tinted i'm a little brown so sometimes people don't know which one you are right so they start mm-hmm. making indian mm-hmm. jokes or they call you packy or whatever i'm like these things don't mean anything because i'm not to these yeah. cultures. Right. Like <laughs> at least get it right yeah if you're gonna be racist be a good racist like you know what i mean like put some effort into it like find my stereotypes and then mock those like don't just mock me for <laughs> somebody else's culture like you know what I mean like oh you have sacred cows that's, I'm like I don't have any cows I
0: don't have any cows <laughs> that's hilarious if, like if like if there was some sort of like the clan or someone offered like a distance learning course it's like look if you're gonna be racist you're gonna need to know the information and then just <laughs> send your courses. like yeah. what they're, they're the pyramid guys yeah, yeah. Like just,
1: like, <laughs> no you know idea. what I mean like yeah we don't do convenience stores that's a different type of brown, right like know your racism is what I'm saying
0: but that's true. It's such a ridiculous thing because the idea of it is just—it's so, and it's so, it feels to me to be such an, such a, 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 um, an artificial thing that's imposed on. Because I say at the end, I'm like, you know, kids aren't born racist; they're made racist because they're whatever their environment, their parents, their or family, or whatever. And um, and I say at one point, it was like. You know, if we get rid of racism, we're just going to have to hate Steve's. We'll just have to hate something because humans do that. Yeah. we got to unite against something. <laughs> yeah. So it's like until aliens come along, it's just going to be each other. And then when aliens come along, finally, we can get mad at Klingons or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> whatever it'll be. Klingons moving in their neighborhood with their Klingon music.
1: Yeah, with their foreheads and everything. <laughs> but you wear a hat, man. <laughs> <laughs> but when you make fun of like uh Racism, or you kind of like, like we said, kind of like Dick Gregory, just kind of like deconstruct it. Like, are the audiences willing to go along with you? Because you were talking about that, where like people are, like comics are saying, like it's hard to say certain things now. Yeah. Are audiences willing to go along with you down that road, or do they kind of go through this like little mental process, like, oh, I don't know if I can laugh at that. There's like that little like, oh yeah, ten second yeah. pause, like, wait, no, that was okay. That joke is okay. It's not racist. Yeah. Well, this. There's,
0: there's actually a joke in this special where I go, uh, I talk about a white guy at a bus stop. And he literally, literally said to me, Chinese people are buying all the houses. And I'm like, yeah, at least they're paying for the land they take. (laughs) And there was this pause where he didn't know what to say. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what to say. And there was this moment of, I was like, I got to remember that. And it was, and when I say that on stage, the audience takes a second because I've talked about a very difficult subject, but I'm clearly on the correct side of it. Mm -hmm. But from their point of view, it's still someone saying this thing that, you know, if you're going to take an audience down a path, they will follow you if you kind of give them a rough idea where they're going and you don't betray them. If you lead them astray, Mm -hmm. they won't follow you again. And so backfooting a crowd, making a crowd slightly uncomfortable or slightly off kilter is ideal for me because that means that, you know, if humor is surprise Mm -hmm. um, and and laughter is a fear response, then what you initially, then what you want is you want the audience to be that little bit more edgy, a little bit more pushback, a little bit more unbalanced But if you're going to do that and then throw heavier topics in, you have to understand that you're dealing with a very delicate, it's like a soap bubble. You can hold on to it, but you can't, you got to be careful with it. And I think, you know, growing up comedically in Vancouver really helps because the audiences out here are very particular and you get very different types of audiences throughout the week. So on a Monday, you might play a really like raucous sort of Monday night, like industry crowd, crazy drunk do the same set the next night at a club, you might get an early show that's been sold to, you know they give away tickets to a bunch of tourists, so half the audience doesn't speak English. And so you have to change the way you deliver it so they understand the concept or get get what you're saying because you're speaking a different language. Then you do the Wednesday, then you're playing maybe a more conservative crowd, then the Thursday you're playing a crazy liberal crowd. And so because of that, the material is tested very, very, and your delivery is tested very, very harshly over the, over the, first, it's like learning to run in the water. You're just going against resistance. So because you've had to navigate these things and be more careful with the way you address topics, you get pretty bulletproof. There's very few things you can say on stage. If you, if you can figure out to make a work a a bit work well in Vancouver, there's very few places that won't work um, just because of the environment comedically that we grew up in. And it's changing a bit, but I think the internet is giving comedians some more accountability. I don't necessarily believe in the witch hunting of comedians, which happens a lot. Um, but I don't feel poor me comedian at all. I think we can, I mean, I talk about anything I w- I literally do talk about anything I want. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I mean, if I, a couple times the only times I will stop is if things are too dark. not not if the subject matter is like if if i if, if I can't talk and say certain words or talk about certain things, it's just if I think the audience has had enough and I don't want to because I find humor in very dark things too. Mm-hmm. And so I don't you know, that's when it gets to the point where you start to need to play a crowd that knows you before they come in. So they know what to expect. So it's like having a conversation with a friend as opposed to a stranger, right? Like if you have a conversation with a stranger, they don't know what you you might be joking about something, or you might talk about this because you find it funny or you might, they don't know. Um, but if you spend a week with them, they may be like, ah, totally. I know what Simon's about. Like I get, I get who I know who he is, you know? And so when your audience knows you, it's like having that friendly conversation and that does help. And that's to the point where I kind of am at now where I need that to grow anymore. I think.
1: So then that is then a conscious, I guess, confrontation for lack of a better word where, because you open this special as good as or better mm-hmm. than with like the first yeah. four or five bits are razi- racism, lazy, hate yeah. uh, jokes. I can yeah. get away with uh, big yeah. white boat and the Steve's the one you already mentioned. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And just kind of like poking fun, or kind of deconstructing, I guess, for lack of a better term, like white yeah. privilege and racism and all these kind mm-hmm. of topics that we've already established. So, is that that is, I guess, kind of like a conscious confrontation to kind of open the special that way? Like, mm-hmm. you, like you said, you were before you you're doing some other new material and took two or three minutes for people to kind of come around and hate the sun with you, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah.
0: At that point, yeah, because I hadn't figured out quite because the audience didn't know me back then. This was like ten years ago. The audience didn't really know me that well, and they also didn't know what was happening, but I trusted that they would get it. You know, I always think of the audience as as smart as or smarter than you. And, and you may be proven wrong, but you can't go in there. One of the things I always had a problem with, with sometimes with comedians like Bill Hicks and stuff, is it's a lot of, like, you people. Like, mm-hmm. he point, he, he's basically saying, I'm here, you people. That's not the way I think you should approach it. Personally, I think it should be, we are. Mm-hmm. Like, we are fucked. This is why we are stupid. Yeah. and But you can only also control what you say, not what people hear. Correct. And so, or interpret. like, I have a, exactly. Like, mm-hmm. I have a joke in that special, which I think is very clearly, I go, I don't know what white privilege is. I'm pretty sure it's the name of one of my dad's boats. Like, I'm very clearly <laughs> making a joke about how oblivious you must be to not. But I know someone who actually took that the wrong way and thought I was genuinely talking about my dad having boats. I'm like, I don't look like a guy who has any boats. Mm-hmm. All right? like, <laughs> I don't look like a guy who can take the ferry. But the thing is, is if they came into that room wanting to think that, wanting to believe that, and justifiably so sometimes being like, oh, another white guy running his app. And I get it because there are a lot of uh, particularly white men in comedy right now are kind of pushing back and being like, ah, it's not fair to me and everything, which is bullshit. Um, I think it I think that you need to if you're going to gain the audience's trust, you need to work them into it. You need to have faith that they're smart enough and thinking fast enough to come with you. But also if that roller coaster is always going up and never drops or is always dropping and never going up, you're going to lose them too. So you have to read the room. That's the most important thing you do. I started this special with the very first thing I say is I'm jealous of racists because they're wrong, but they're confident. Mm -hmm. I'm making it very clear. I say in that phrase, I'm jealous of races. What the hell did this guy say? Because they're wrong. Okay, but they're confident. Yeah, they are. Boom. Three things right there. That, mm-hmm. and then you go from there. So they know where I stand within 30 seconds. They know roughly where I feel how I feel about things. Anything that comes after that is just me reinforming those points, me reaffirming what I believe, how I believe. But even then, that clip went viral. And you know, you get like a few a million hits or whatever, and there's gonna be some people out there. Whether a you are trying to start shit with it, or b specifically are being obtuse like on purpose, yeah. yeah. And so there's people like I was like, oh, so you admire racism? Like you didn't even listen. You didn't even like you don't care. And yeah. so I can't control that. I can't control
1: that. Yeah, but one of the things you can't control, and you've kind of alluded a little bit about this, but I I want to flesh it out a little bit more, which is mm-hmm. like, how do you kind of balance like as you said, the, you're willing to go down some dark roads, you're willing to like talk about racism and like white privilege and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But there's also kind of like a ranty quality in some of your bits as mm-hmm. well, right? So but how, yeah, how nice. do you balance, like, I guess, the humor without developing to, like, I guess, in like an angry Tucker Carlson rant or something? You know what I mean? Like
0: Yeah, and that is the thing. And and you're absolutely right about that, 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 that a lot of comedians tend to forget that they're comedians. I mean, my number one job is is to be funny and also, you know, to share what I find funny. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like it's like a painter sitting in an attic painting doesn't think about whether people will like the color red or the color green or whatever. They just paint what they feel Mm -hmm. and hope that it finds its audience. Unfortunately, we can't quite do that because this is a performance art. And so because of that, I need to adjust if I want to continue to get my point across and tell the jokes I want, I need to make sure the audience is still engaged and entertained. And sometimes it's like you have a very because the way I write is I take the complicated, heavy thing I want to talk about. And I take the idea and I take it out on stage and I just, I never write, for, I just go on stage and I just rant it out or talk it out. So I'll take the idea and I'll go on stage. And I'll be like, all right, let's, let's see if my communication skills can figure out a way to get this across. As I'm talking it out, I'm finding the humor, I'm finding what they think is funny, what they don't think is funny, mm-hmm. where I can go here. Should I push more that way? So then that's how the bit refines. And so you kind of, because you're writing in real time, or at least I do, um, you're getting instant responses to what might work and what might not work. And, and so it's not a surprise to me if I go, Oh, I'm take a left turn here. It's far from them. Okay. They can't take that. We'll take a right. But I like that joke. So I'll remember that. We'll see if we can find a crowd or if I can find a way to get there. And sometimes there's bits you just simply don't have the tools to do yet. A lot of comedians these days, you know, they will be three years in and they'll listen to a bunch of Rogan or whatever. And, and, you know, Burr and CK or whatever they listen to and think they can do that and don't realize that that's, 20 years in the making, yeah. you know, it's like you wouldn't go into a music store, pick up a guitar and expect to be able to play like, you know, a guitar hero, you, you know, that you have to practice, but with our art form, people don't seem to see that. And so that just comes of a lot of experience of reading where the crowd wants to go, you know, be, having the tool to deal with it, where they want to go. So knowing what I can talk about, how I can, and then your natural sense of humor has to be something that, you know, can be appealing. You have to have a sense of humor that, that, is because comedy is nothing if if it doesn't relate, people can't relate. And that's why sometimes you'll, you know, sometimes I'll get people will heckle or or not heckle, but like they'll make comments about, well, actually factually this, I go, yeah, but what you don't understand is if you're making a joke about a sci-fi movie, you have to say Star Wars because 99% of people have seen Star Wars. You could say some obscure movie like Event Horizon or something, but then you're gonna lose 85% of the crowd. So Mm -hmm. even though Event Horizon might be a better reference, Star Wars is the reference that works for the bigger piece. And so that's part of it too, is understanding the language you're speaking and understanding the references people will get quickly. Um, You know, you can't just do this sort of, I sat down and researched the most obscure shit I can to sound smart on stage. That's bullshit. If you can't communicate, and that's why I rant the way I do too, because I genuinely feel like that. I have emotion. I, I will stop doing a bit if I'm not emotional about it anymore. I will. And so if I get mad about something, if I get enraged, about, I don't, I don't, I used to put a lid on that before I figured out a way to, to, to use it because I was, but I was like, people respond to the emotion. I've got more response to that sort of stuff than anything I've ever done because people like, yeah, I'm mad too. Or like, oh, that's hilarious, man. And I've thought about that because you're still giving them jokes. Still entertaining. Mm -hmm. It's not just me, you know, with wraparound sunglasses, yelling in a pickup truck into my phone. (laughs) It's not just that guy. Like I still have jokes because the humor also means that the every time you tell a joke, it unlocks the door into their brain, and they let you say one more thing. Mm -hmm. And as long as you keep giving them that, they'll come with you. It's very rare audiences will completely push back, and if they do, that's my job to figure out a way to say that thing in a way they can they can get it.
1: Yeah, kind of on a tangent from what you're saying. One aspect of what you're talking about is like audiences, for example, will will push back, like you said, if you're talking, if you're deconstructing racism, making jokes about racism, Mm -hmm. or whatever. Some people will be like, "Oh, he's a racist or whatever." Like, you mean they take Mm -hmm. that kind of? But the other flip side too, that like I've been finding a lot of reactions to comedy lately is people take it like literally.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's also weird.
1: I'm like, he's talking about a talking dog or whatever in a bit. I'm like, this is such like. Comedy is always, like, a bit of exaggeration.
0: You know what I mean? Like, the baby was
1: talking to me or whatever, like,
0: you know? Yeah, I I think the idea that somehow this is a TED Talk really is – I think that's also because that serves people's purposes, right? Like, they want it to be – they want to be angry about something. I think people in general are frustrated and angry, and they know they're being lied to, and they know things are wrong, and they – so they're drawing lines in the sand, and they're trying – to fight back in any way they can. And it's often misguided. And in those situations, like, you know, someone will say, "Oh, aren't you afraid of getting cancer? They go, well, no, I never say anything I don't believe or can't defend. So if I, as a human being, uh, the the person I am is not appropriate for society, then I have to do some soul searching. But I know that that's not the case. I also know that art is subjective and Mm -hmm. people can take what they want from it. And so, you know, if someone sees a bit that I do, they choose to believe that I'm do, delivering some sort of diary entry or monologue and not actually trying to make jokes. I cannot control that. Um, mm. Whether they're doing that on purpose or like I said, you know, they're, they're just unaware or uninterested or some people legitimately are dim. It does happen. There are people out there who are not that bright and we have to accept that.
1: Seven billion people. Exactly. Some, this is going to some, be... Somebody's yeah. not getting into M.I.D. Right? Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a very nice way of saying it. <laughs> right yeah (laughs) but it's true and so you have to accept that those variables exist i'm surprised stand-up comedy works as much as it does at all yeah because if you think how weird it is you're just getting on stage sharing your sense of humor with a room of complete strangers who've never been in that room together at the same time ever they don't know each other they don't and yet you're expecting them to work as a team in a conversation with you about the weird things you think about and hoping that they'll understand your very strange point of view, which is why you are what you are. I mean, there's very few stand-up comics, like full-time professional stand-up comics in Canada, for instance. There's very few. Mm-hmm. There's like uh, a couple hundred at most out of a country of, what, thirty-six billion million people? So you got to think about how small the percentage of people that do this is. And so it's a very weird thing to do anyway. I really... Yeah, I have no time for people who, sp- who purposefully take things the wrong way. If they can, they can get it, but they refuse to because they're trying to push an agenda. I got no time for that. Yeah. That but makes if you sense. genuinely don't get it, talk to me. I'll explain it to you. Yeah. And if you still don't get it, just accept the fact that maybe, maybe the reason 99% of people get it and everything is because I'm what I'm saying is like I'm I'm being truthful. I'm not being hateful. I'm not being... Because I got no time for hateful stuff. I got no time for that. That makes sense. You can say it you want. But if you're hateful, that mm-hmm. comes through though. You can tell. You can tell when someone's hateful, yeah. you know, when they deliver, if someone makes a mistake and says the wrong word, not great, but that's not a reason to destroy someone. It's like, Hey man, like this is how you learn. Don't, that's not going to work because the audiences aren't going to accept that. They're not going to understand the point you're making. They're not going to come aboard with you. You're going to alienate someone. If someone's up there saying hateful stuff, they may never say a hateful word, mm-hmm. but they'll say hateful things. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so like I always say, is like there's there's the two kind of racists you really got to worry about. Uh, the racist on the street corner yelling Rachel slurs and everything—he's terrible. He's a piece of garbage. Everyone hates him, but at least he's honest. <laughs> it's the guy shaking your hand at the company who's like, "Welcome aboard," and we'll never promote you. That's the guy. That's the real scary one because they're usually in a position of power because they haven't got canceled yet. Yeah. So you have to be a little more realistic about. You know, that dynamic.
1: Yeah. I mean, you acknowledged like in your special, uh, like the whole thing with cops and killing black people. But there is Uh that other type of racism that we never really seem to acknowledge, which is that you'll go through life and you will not know that it was racism. Like you apply for a job. Everyone applies for a job. Not everyone gets that job. But did you not get the job because you didn't have the right qualifications or something? Or did you not get the job because you applied because you were brown or black or Chinese or whatever? Exactly.
0: Right. And, and that's, that's what I said about what white privilege is. What, in my summation, what white privilege is is that I never think about my race. It never comes into my head. It's never an object. And then, and then I said on stage, unless I'm doing particularly difficult, difficult stand-up material in front of, in front <laughs> of an audience. But, but mostly, like, yeah, I've never not got an apartment or not got a job or not got something and thought oh, it's because I'm white. It's never become an issue for me. And, mm-hmm. and I know that will not be an issue for my child. Because So I have to be very cognizant of the fact that I cannot understand that experience because I have never had that experience. What I can say is that from my experience, the way I see the world, the way I'm I understand that's one of the... It's not about... Because, you know, you'll talk to people and they go, oh, white privilege, I'm broke. That's nothing to do with it. That's nothing to do with it. What it is, it's, it's not what you have. It's how you're seen. It's how the world treats you. It's what you have to have. I don't have to have a conversation with my son about what happens if he gets pulled over. I don't have to have that conversation because he's a white kid. Mm-hmm. Odds are very good. It will be easy for him. Is that fair? Absolutely not. Is it reality? It is. And so you can dream things should be the way they should, but until we take action to make those things that way, they are going to continue to be dreams. And the one of the ways that I believe as, as a white you know, straight male, uh, particularly with a little bit of a platform, is to say, I understand, I'm trying to continue to learn. I am going to make mistakes, as all humans are. Mm -hmm. Please try to judge intent uh, and meaning more than anything else. Or try not to judge, try to take into account. Because I think the problem is, is that, like, I'm a very liberal guy, I'm a very left-wing guy. I think the problem is that the left-wing, particularly at this point, and you see it with comedy sometimes, they push back so hard that they actually end up pushing people who just simply needed. Hey, you, you know what? Why? What is it? Now they push them to the center and even to the right mm-hmm. because they get frustrated and they're like, I'm not a bad guy. I just don't understand. And it's like, nope, you have to understand. Well, that's not fair either. So there needs to be balance. Communication is just it's broken down a bit. It's, you know,
1: it's th- the the classic conundrum where like you know. You're expected to know how to, quote unquote, uh, help or deal with like blind people or handicapped people or deaf people, whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you don't hang out with these types of people, then how do you know how you're supposed to help them?
0: Exactly. Yeah. It's the yeah. way that
1: like sometimes it's like I have a friend who's blind and people will like talk loudly to him. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he can't see, but he can hear. Right. Like, oh, you know what I mean? Humans are ridiculous, <laughs> right? <laughs> And I'm like, 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 why? It's like if I was yelling at you or yelling at him, I'm like, why yeah. Why is everybody yelling right now? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: like, you should just yell back even louder. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, you're going to have to speak up. I can't see.
1: Right. And it's one of those things where like, you know, yeah. like you slow down or like, you know, if the, the deaf guy reads lips or whatever it may be, like you yeah. figure out what his jam is and then you kind of adjust accordingly. It's not rocket yeah. science, but the blind no. guy is like
0: blind, but he can hear.
1: So like, yeah.
0: You know, that's the thing. But if you're not allowed to. And the other thing is every individual has their own. So so one blind person may be like, oh, you know, this is how I want to this. If you could hold doors for me, that'd be great. And one blind person might be like, please don't do this. And so you have to find out what that individual wants as mm-hmm. well. So there's not a, a defined set of rules. What we need to start doing. And I think this is something that I found in stand up is really kind of um, helping me communicate even better is uh, trying to look at the whole as individuals in a group as opposed to just a group. So what you have to do is like, see that like, okay, um, this group of people fall under blank category, like, you know, political leanings this way or whatever, because they are this, it doesn't mean they all believe all the same things or all like, if you look at politics, most voters are one issue voters, they Mm. believe one thing, abortion, Mm. whatever it is, you know, whatever it is, immigration, whatever it is, they believe that thing. And that's their voting, And then everything else that goes, that's why politicians can sneak so much in because it's like, look, man, you're going to get the gun rights you want, but we're also going to mm-hmm. you know, drill holes in Alaska. It's like, well, hang on a second. And because of that, because people are often one issue um, driven, because also, like I said, they have lives. They're doing mm-hmm. things. They don't have time to sit down. Misinformation and being unaware is the tool of the despot, is the tool of the control. Because if you don't know what's going on other than the one specific thing, or if you don't have time, if you're too busy running on the, the hamster wheel to focus on anything, then they can get stuff by. And I think as a society, we start to need to realize that, like, the person you're talking to is a lot of different ideas and a lot of different experiences and a lot of different things. And yeah, you're not going to understand some of them, but there's probably something you can share. You know, there's probably something you, and that's up to them too. They have to find if you put out your hand to shake it and they won't shake it, that's not your fault. You tried and vice versa. And I think that a lot of us just are so so contained in the thing we believe and 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 in the tribes we are in and behind the lines we've drawn that it's really even hard to see someone's putting their hand out now and so i think stand-up comedy has i've experienced it personally has given a chance sometimes to make that leap to mm-hmm. to 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 have someone talk to you after show and go you know like uh you know i mean i know a couple of guys who are uh, you know and it's just like that and it's like before you know it you're having a conversation They may never have been able to talk to anybody about this ever before, or they may have been afraid there is a closet of ideals. You know, if you grow up in an area surrounded by a certain group of people who believe a certain group of things, it's very terrifying to step outside of that, no matter what you are. Not everybody who drives around with, you know, flags hanging off their trucks and truck nuts and everything is a right wing redneck. Most of them aren't. Most Mm -hmm. of them are just good people who just are surviving. And that's their pack because Mm -hmm. they don't have another pack. Yeah. And so we need to sort of be like, I know you're over there, but we're not that far apart because most people are in the middle.
1: Yeah. It's just recognizing the individuals, what you're talking about. Like, just mm-hmm. to kind of circle back to what I was thinking about, like, handicapped people. It's like if you put a ramp out in the middle of your store, out front of your store, mm-hmm. you're like, I'm done. I helped them. I'm like, well, that, yeah. that doesn't help everyone, yeah. right? That's not yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like <laughs> put up a sign. What do you want? <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm like, yeah. I'm done right and that's what you're talking about was like figure out like each individual has different needs or different like experiences so it's kind of like figuring out a way to kind of communicate as you said before with your comedy we're trying to figure out in ways to communicate properly these jokes these ideas of racism and other things that we're talking about in the special
0: yeah. Well, it's like when, it, what, you know, when you often hear people talk about like they grew up in a small town and it was so nice because everyone knew each other and everything. That's because everyone had accountability to each other because there weren't, there weren't. if you were in a big city and there's 6 million people, you don't have accountability to most of those people because you'll never see them again. They come and go. Same with the internet. You can say what you want on the internet. You don't have a lot of accountability. You can get away with whatever you want. You know, If you did that in the bar, you'd get punched in the nose. That's accountability. And so because we don't have that connection anymore and because people have their beliefs and their beliefs and their ideals get exacerbated by, by agent provocateurs and people who push them and people who try and manipulate people, you, you're dealing with this kind of terrible cauldron of um, you know upset, confusion, dis, being, people being disenfranchised. And then they need an outlet, and a lot of the times, or they need to belong because that's a human thing, and because they can't, they don't have a little community they exist in. They don't have, you know, a village of you know a hundred people where they know everybody. They don't belong anywhere, and so they find a, a group of people they can belong to. And often this is where radicalization and extremism, um, you know, anyone who's a, who's fundamentally impossible to talk to, regardless of the side of the spectrum they're on, left or right wing, whatever it is. Uh, it's a very dangerous thing because then, you know, conversation has been replaced with rampant idealism and this is a difficult thing. And so I don't know if you can get those people back. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a, a sociologist. I don't know. What I do know is that humor is pretty universal. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everyone. I had a guy, he, he said, because one a couple of the jokes that were, that were posted from the special before he released it were, you know, uh, the racism jokes. And he goes, oh, man, I liked your stuff, but I don't know. It seems like it's all woke comedy now. I'm like, hang on a second. That's not even a thing. Second of all, why don't you watch it first Mm -hmm. and see that I'm not just getting out there trying to get applause by saying like, yeah, man, white man suck. I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. What I'm doing is going like, this is what I think. This is ridiculous. He watched it. Then he messaged me. He was like, oh, man, I was wrong. I was like, why don't you just give it a second? But he's so programmed that if I do anything that isn't like, you should be able to make fun of anybody. I'm like, you can make fun of anybody. You just got to be smarter about it, which is great for comics like me, because it means that the experience and the time and the effort I put in pays off, you know?
1: And that universal experience of comedy that you're talking about, does that help you, I guess, kind of fit in? Because you seem to almost, just by our conversation here, you don't seem somebody who naturally fits in. You seem a little weird, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's very generous of you. Yes. A little is, is an understatement. Yeah, I was
1: soften it. I was like, uh. <laughs> You'd be like,
0: you're a psycho. I'd be yeah.
1: like, yeah, I'm a psycho. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I think you might be a danger to society. So, like, <laughs> does that universal humor, like, that universal like, experience, I guess, of humor, does that help you yeah. then kind of fit in? Or do you, like, because also the, the flip side of it, too, is, like, comics, good comics are based on their powers of observation, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, they need to get the laughs, but it's that unique observation, that unique perspective that the best comics have. Yeah. Yeah. And so you kind of need to like almost step away from the culture in a sense to like Mm -hmm. see it before you, so you can comment on it. So does that humor then help you fit in or do you kind of like being on the margins or on the edge, I guess?
0: Well, it comes from, so I was born in England. And uh, when I moved to Canada, I was five years old. So I was really young. And I had a very thick English accent. I was a little chubby kid. And I grew up in an area where there was a little less than tolerance for anything that wasn't exactly the same. So even though I was a white dude, um, there was still a lot of like, well, he's not like us. So I was very much on the outside of things, very much not connected to groups. And found that the only way I could defend myself against the bullying and the alienation and everything was to be funny. It didn't necessarily ingratiate me to the other people as much. Like, I mean, I had friends eventually, but but what it did do was give me a set of tools to, I learned early that if a joke has already been said, it's less powerful. So if someone's going to make fun of me at the time for being fat or having the accent I had or whatever it was, I would make that joke first. Mm-hmm. I would get quickly to it. And then they didn't have as much ammunition and eventually they would stop most of them. It didn't always end. I mean, I was bullied viciously. I dropped out of high school because of it. Like I, I dropped out of high school in grade 11 because I just couldn't handle, it was just basically got to a point where it was like, I can't do this. I'm not going to survive. Like I knew it. And so I've always existed in a place where I have not felt welcome or at home pretty much wherever I've been uh, with the exception of a few friends and being on stage. Because being on stage, for the time that like I'm behind a microphone, I have control of something of some way. And I feel that I matter because outside of it, I, I generally don't have a very high opinion of myself. And I believe that like, uh, man, there's so many things I need to do. You know, I need to learn, I need to do this. I need, you know, I need to be more successful. I mean, and that's, I think that's what drives entertainment people particularly is that need to prove something. Mm-hmm. Um, but with me, it got all haywire and it was like the only way I can communicate properly what I feel is these jokes. And the only way I can feel in control or any validity in who I am is on stage so I have to figure out a way <laughs> to make telling jokes what I do and then it just kind of became this thing where like to use lack of a better term it was my happy place when I'm on stage the time I'm behind a microphone the time I'm around comedy maybe half an hour after or 10 minutes before sort of that when I'm in that mode uh, I have value I, before I was a stand-up comic I, I was afraid to even like I, I was so shy so hard I mean it's still shy anyway but So hard for me to go to places, so hard for me to be around people because I was terrified. I was terrified that someone was going to turn on me and I was going to be humiliated again. And it was going to be, but when I became a comedian, it gave me legitimate control over that. So even if now, if that happened now, now that I'm in my 40s, even if that happened now, uh, you know, there's that feeling of you just go back to being a seven year old kid in your head. But then I also am like, hold on a second. I can do this thing that a lot of people can't do, that a lot of people think is a really weird and interesting job. It's given me a perspective all that bullshit I went through gave me a perspective to do this job mm-hmm. which means that all of that mattered and valued which means that all that time wasn't wasted I had value and now I'm using my value so instead of instead of just kind of hiding behind stand-up i'm it, I'm wearing it as a badge of honor I'm like this is I went through a lot of shit to be able to be this guy I'm glad I'm out here'm I, I don't I don't want to open the door I'll break through the wall that's just what I do and I'm and, I, and I'm very happy the way it turned out but It was a long road to get here and a lot of being alone. And so I think that's why comedians particularly tend to be broken. You know, comics joke about how like we're broken people and they are. A lot of comedians are very sad. They commit suicide. They drink Mm -hmm. themselves to death. It's something we do. And it's because there's a lot of hurt that goes into being funny. It's just really weird. That's the way it is.
1: You almost sound like it's like uh, your life. It sounds like the Shawshank Redemption.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I haven't crawled through a tube of shit yet, but I will. (laughs)
1: All right. We'll, maybe you save that for the next special. Uh, but this special is called As Good As or Better Than. Where can mm-hmm. people find you online uh, to talk about the special or enjoy some of your sarcasm? You post a lot of like really sarcastic one liners.
0: <laughs> well, uh, on Twitter, I'm at Unfamous. You can find me there. That's one of the ones that I'm most active there. And on Instagram, at This Is Simon King. My website is thisissimonking.com, and uh, my you can go there, and there's all the links to my YouTube channels on my social media and everything like that. The special is on my YouTube channel, and we decided to do that release so that basically I want everyone to see it. I don't want anyone to have to subscribe to anyone. I want them to see it. It's directed by a comedian who's legendary, a legendary guy named Rory Scovel, who's just an amazing comedian amazing sensibilities and really the whole team at comedy here often brought this together really well but Rory was just like the icing on the cake because he saw what I was doing Mm -hmm. understood it from a comedian's point of view and lent uh, an amazing eye to it so I really I'm very proud of how it looks it's not filmed in a theater it's not a bit it's filmed like I'm a hundred seat guy I sell a hundred tickets so that's where we filmed it we filmed it over a couple shows at a place called the Biltmore it's like a punk bar in Vancouver really cool low ceilings I feel like it's a good piece of work and I really just hope people enjoy it. You know,
1: as good as or better than that's yep, the name that's of the special. It. Yeah. So as you, I can put the link in for YouTube. Uh, thank you so much for hanging out Simon. Uh, we thank covered you. quite a bit uh, that uh, Dick Gregory is a undervalued, uh, underappreciated oh, yeah. comic uh, that your life has uh, parallel meaning or parallel uh, associations with Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> And that if you're going to be racist, do it properly. I think, yeah, that's,
0: yeah. That, I think that's, that's the most important thing. Yeah,
1: that's the message for the kids. Like, if you're going to do it, commit to it. Like, yeah. do the it's, work, anything worth, anything worth doing is worth doing right, racist. Yeah, man, like read a book or something, right? Before you become racist.
0: <laughs> I love the idea. Thank you so much for the chat. I really enjoyed this. I really did.
1: Yo, that was stand-up comic Simon King, whose latest comedy special is As Good As or Better Than, and I am your host, you're my Summerlayer host, actually, Sammy. When Simon King and I were discussing Dick Gregory, I couldn't fully remember the title of the recent Showtime documentary. I know, I am so fired, I will pack up my things in a banker's box. The Outstanding Doc is called The One and Only Dick Gregory. I highly recommend it on Showtime, On Demand in America, and Crave in Canada. If you don't know Dick Gregory, I'm sorry for your loss. But also, now is an essential time to get into his work. Though he passed away in 2017, he remains relevant. This is a comic who in the 50s and 60s, this is before joining civil rights movement, spent a big chunk of his time, his stand-up career, deconstructing and mocking racism. Ready for this? This is one of my favorite Dick Gregory lines. Segregation is not all bad. Have you ever heard of a collision where the people in the back of the bus got hurt? BAM! (laughs) That's so fresh. So, yes, you have two things for your homework, but they're both comedy related, so this is good and witty homework. I encourage you to check out Dick Gregory. Maybe start with the documentary. And of course, I also encourage you to check out Simon King's comedy special, As Good as or Better Than on YouTube. If you want to know about me and the weird way that I think, well, then you can sign up for my Substack newsletter. Go to substack.com slash my pal Sammy and sign up. All the cool kids are doing it and even some of the losers. I welcome both. Substack.com slash my pal Sammy. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to me in the Netflix world. Funny bones, yo.